Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guide to John chapter 8. We're finishing the chapter this morning, and we'll start in verse 31. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who died? Uh, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What are we doing in John's Gospel? It's not something that we can necessarily answer every week, but it's something that we occasionally need to remind ourselves of to remember why we're doing what we're doing. Why we're looking at what we are looking at. And to step, take a step just a little bit back, last, in the last century, something happened that has affected all of us. Uh, modernism hooked, got together with uh, pietism, and they had a child that wasn't intended to be, and that child was fundamentalism. 
fundamentalism saturated, affected virtually every brand of Western Christianity throughout the last century. Affected it in this way. Fundamentalism is the idea that there's a system, and if you master that system, then you you kind of understand Christianity and can expect certain things. Fundamentalism was like the, the P90X of Christianity. You do your routine, you do your rest days, you watch your diet, and as a result, you will have this body. But over time, people realize, well, it's very difficult to do that routine, and even if I did do it, I don't necessarily look like the people in the ads. There's something that's wanting in fundamentalism. And that's kind of where we find ourselves culturally waking up a little bit. You might think, you may not even know what all those words mean. You might find that to be rather abstract, but I believe that it's part of my responsibility to help all of us understand that we are always a product of our time and culture. If you do not understand that, if you think that you are autonomous and you really decide your own course without being affected by those things, then you're incredibly naive. We are all affected by these things, and one of the, the effects of fundamentalism was was stripping Christianity of its relationship with God. The relational quality that is essential to understanding who God is in Jesus Christ was was brought out so that Christianity became somewhat vapid. It became an air freshener that, that covered up a stink but didn't really do anything to remedy the actual situation that caused the stink. And that's why we're in the Gospel of John that many of you, while that may have felt abstract, this doesn't. You don't experience God in the way you would like to. Yes, you go through the motions of doing what you think you're supposed to do, but the intimacy, the abundant life that is promised in the Bible is something that is somewhat foreign to you or something that feels just out of your reach. And you wonder at times, why doesn't God show up? And this is one of the themes of John, that God is present with us. Is he? And in what way? These are the questions that we're asking as we proceed through the Gospel of John. And in today's passage, we see that, that Jesus is present with us in truth. He is present with us as we experience his freedom. Okay, well, What does it mean to experience his freedom? That's what we're going to wrestle with today. That's what the Jews were wrestling with in his day. And in some ways, we'll see that not much has changed. In other ways, we'll see, hopefully, some things have changed very dramatically. It's really interesting as we're going to just track the course of the conversation as it unfolds. But even as we begin to track that conversation, the issue at hand is Jesus promises that this truth, that this relationship with him, abiding in his word and being his disciple, will set you free. Freedom is something that even as we started in the children's lesson, it's something that we wrestle with. What really is freedom? How do we experience it? Is freedom having the ability to do what you want to do? Well, what happens when you find yourself doing what you want to do, but you don't really want to do that. That's a problem for freedom or, or being trapped in some capacity. In fact, the more we think about freedom, the more complicated it becomes. A good example is the story of Elena uh, Frangidis. Elena is an 18-year-old in Florida. She has grown up in Tarpon Springs and lives in an eight-bedroom house in a gated community. Um, has grown up with every resource afforded to her, and uh, this past year became Miss Teen USA, a for-profit beauty pageant, in which she became the winner. And as part of winning that beauty pageant, she became uh, the representative for the year. You know, you have to do the tour after winning the pageant. And one of her stops was a camp in Florida 
called E Nini Hasi. It's one of, it's the oldest camp for troubled girls in the United States, established sometime in the 50s or 60s. And it's a very serious wilderness camp. You have to hike in, uh, two or three miles to the camp. You sleep under the stars and you, uh, of course, there's no internet, there's no phone, there's no television. You are utterly disconnected. You, if you have to use the restroom, you use a bucket in the night. And they take your shoes, the counselors take your shoes at night so that you can't run away and try to flee the camp. So this is one of the visits for an afternoon for Elena after she's won Miss Teen USA. And she has such a remarkable time that she arranges to come back and actually spend a night with the girls. Now, at the outset, you might think that Elena really is free. She is the one who's grown up with great resource. She's Miss Teen USA. She's headed off to college and to an aspiring career. And these girls who are already at the camp are at the camp because they've suffered dramatically. They've grown up in difficult homes or no home at all and, and have very difficult lives, and that's why they're at the camp. And Mark, that most of, of their risks were seriously marked up as a result of the trauma that they had experienced in their efforts to deal with that. But as you read about Elena's stay at the camp, you begin to notice some interesting observations or experiences that she has. She sees girls fighting and bickering, and the counselor goes in, and they, and they spend a long time talking through their disagreement. Well, Elena thinks to herself, you know, that's kind of neat. My family never does that. We just argue, but then we don't, we don't talk it through. There's no resolution. There never has been. And she goes on. She realizes that she's having a good time, but she doesn't have any makeup. She's not done up, and she's not even worried about the way that she looks. She's actually just enjoying herself being goofy and having fun with these girls, and then realizes, oh, these girls are, are loving me for who I am rather than what I'm doing, which is very unlike all my other relationships that I have in my life. And it goes on, she's talking with a, another girl at the camp, and the girl asks about her father, and she says, I don't really know him. I just, my mother encouraged me to drop his name this year, which I just did. My parents, in the course of their divorce, have been to court 160 times. And so the girl she's talking to, who uh, is there because she was beaten up by her cocaine dealer, said, that must be really hard. As the story goes on, you, you, as, you, as you enter the story, you would think, well, obviously Elena is the one who is free, and the girls are the camp are the ones who are not free. And as you get to the story and go through, you begin to think, oh, I wonder, I wonder really what the story is here. And the author described the night uh, that Elena was relating to her in this way. Long after everyone else fell asleep, Elena lay staring at the dark, listening to insects and an owl, wind ruffling the branches. Deep in the woods, under constant guard, with no chance of getting away, she felt free. Freedom is something that sometimes surprises us, that's elusive, that we don't necessarily understand. Are you free? Do you really know what that means in the way that Jesus holds it out to those who are listening to him? Abide in my words. I reveal truth. I will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you know what that means? The Jews didn't, and we're actually going to look at their three objections to Jesus. In the course of the conversation, they start by saying, we don't need your freedom, number one. Number two, they say, we don't need your righteousness. And number three, they say, we don't need your truth. So as Jesus holds out this offer to freedom, the Jews who are gathered there say, 
We don't need uh, your freedom. We don't need your righteousness, and we don't need your truth. So first, we don't need your freedom. In verse 31, look at the text with me. Jesus offers truth that sets one free. In verse 33, the response of the Jews to this offer is, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Do you see what's happening here? Jesus has offered freedom in a spiritual sense. The Jews have heard it in a political and physical sense. He said, we're not slaves of anybody. No one's ruling over us. What are you talking about? We are not, uh, we don't need to be free. So they've misheard Jesus. In verse uh, 34, Jesus makes clear what he's talking about. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. There's no playing with sin. There's no toying with sin. Once you commit it, you are a slave thereof. And the Jews, therefore, misunderstand their own slavery. Jesus says, I can set you free. The Jews say, we're not in slavery, so we don't know what you're talking about being free. Jesus says, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This is something that they fail to grasp, but it raises for us the reality that we so often fail to understand our own slavery. Do we not also, as we think about ways that we desire to be free, if you were to sit and say, in what ways would I feel more free this week? I guarantee that the majority of your answers would be about your marriage and about your financial status and about your kids, that you would be liberated from that which you feel pressing on you most, most in the moment. Those things which affect you immediately. Jesus says, that's, that may be related, that may be signal, but you don't understand what really is at the heart of what you need to be freed from is from your propensity to sin, that your heart loves sin, that your heart has as much in common with your father, the devil, as it does with God, your father. As you notice, as we're going to go through this passage, Jesus will hold out two things at the same time. He says, yes, you are children of Abraham, and no, you're not children of Abraham. How can that be? Yes, biologically they are descended from Abraham, but are they really children in spirit and in will and in action of Abraham? Absolutely not, because they don't have their father's faith. What kind of faith do they have? What kind of action do they have? That of the devil. Can not, does not, Scripture hold out the same thing to us, in which Jesus might stand in our very midst and say, yes, some of you are unified with me. You might say all of you, in one sense, know me. But in another sense, you don't know me. You can think of Matthew 7, in which he says, tells a story in which at the end of time, those who gather before him, some will claim to have known him very well, and he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. It is always the risk in the people of God that we might be self, uh, self-deceived to think that we are part of it. And we must, like the Jews in this story, always be asking the question, do we really understand what it means to be free in Christ, or are we just pretending at it? We uh, we need to understand more deeply the slavery that we have to the sin which grips our hearts. The sins that we engage in that ultimately can devour us, those are the things which threaten us uh, in the most significant way. C.S. Lewis paints an interesting picture of this in The Great Divorce, this um, book that describes kind of the end of time and how things are unfolding at that moment. A woman is, who's very unhappy is, is picked up by the bus and she's, she's just grumbling on and on. All she can do is grumble. And the teacher, who's another character in the story, uh, 
uses this moment as a teaching moment. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one we spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our eyes forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent of it and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble inside going on forever like a machine. What a wondrous picture of the nature of sin and the bondage of slavery that results from that sin. They're looking at a woman who is just complaining on this bus that picks her up and the the teacher responding to, you know, what what's going on here and what's the spirit of this woman? She says, yes, she started one day simply grumbling. But she kept grumbling. She didn't repent of it. And each day she grumbled a little bit more. And so the question is that eventually that sin will consume her very humanity so that there's nothing actually left of her, but only the grumble itself that will go on for eternity. Now, it may not be grumbling for you. It may not be envy. But what are the sins in your life that you feel like you might taste a little bit of slavery when you think about them? You engage them. Do them and you feel like it robs you of a little bit of your humanity and you end up there back, you end up back there more than you would like. And you know that if you continue down that road, ultimately it will consume you. This is the slavery that Jesus speaks of. This is the slavery of which we need to be set free. The Jews can't hear it. They say, we're children of Abraham. We're not slaves to anyone. We don't need your freedom, Jesus. Indeed. They need it desperately, as we do. And so the conversation continues to unfold, and after denying the freedom that Jesus offers, they deny that they need his righteousness or his right standing with God. We see this. Look at verse 38. Jesus suggests that the real problem here is one of paternity. In verse 39, uh, the Jews are confident in their father Abraham and the covenant. Right? We're children of Abraham. What do, they, what do they mean when they say that? What's the big deal? Remember that God entered a covenant with Abraham. He promised him that he would give him land and progeny and um, that through his people, as descendants, there would be a great blessing to the nations. So the Jews are saying, we are descendants of Abraham. We're part of that covenant. We are in a good place. Jesus says, no, you only think that you are children of Abraham. You're really not. Now, how can Jesus make that claim to those who clearly biologically are unquestionably? But he lays three charges against them. Verse 39, they don't do the works Abraham did. Verse 43, they don't understand what Jesus says. And verse 44, their will is to do the will of their father, the devil. In other words, they have nothing in common with Abraham. They don't value what he valued. They don't pursue God in the way that he pursued God. 
And instead, what they do, and their inability to hear Jesus actually reveals that they have more in common with their father, the devil. What language? Talking to the very people of God, the people who prided themselves on their relationship with God, and saying, no, you don't know Abraham. You are much more in common with your father, the devil. Would Jesus say that to you? That when we look at what you do and what you love and where you invest your time and your energy, let's not kid ourselves. There's far more of the devil bearing out in your life than there is of Jesus. The Jews, again, they don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. They would prefer to uh, understand their right standing with God by virtue of being descendants of Abraham. Saying, Jesus, we don't need what you offer because we're descendants of Abraham. We don't need your right standing with God. We've already have it, have had it established. The Jews presume upon God's grace. They don't think they need Jesus to be right with God. And of course, that is somewhat familiar to us. It, it can be familiar in, a night way, in another way. There's a sense of entitlement going on. The Jews are saying, look, our father was Abraham. We're part of the covenant. Jesus, we're good to go. We're already insiders. But is that so different than a Christian today who you might meet on the street or you might be this person who says, I believe in Jesus. I confess that he's Lord and Savior. He died on the cross, raised from the dead. I am an insider. I'm good to go. We can make a very similar claim to the claim that the Jews are making in this day. But if our claim is simply about something that we purport to believe, but are all the things that Jesus points out about the Jews, our actions and our words and our ability to understand Jesus actually aren't happening and we have more in common with our father the devil, then we've got a problem. The Jews reject Jesus' righteousness. Do we actually do something similar when we say, yeah, I need his righteousness, but I don't really, I'm not interested in embodying his righteousness? The conversation continues to unfold and gets a little bit more intense as uh, the Jews reject, deny that they need Jesus' truth. In fact, they deny that he's being true at all. So we don't need your freedom. We don't need your righteousness. We're already in good standing with God. We don't need your truth, which you see in verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Those are fighting words in the first century, right? Samaritans are despised. It's a pretty nasty thing to call somebody. And by the way, we think you just have a demon. That's why you can do the impressive things that you can do. Jesus goes on to help them understand that he reveals the Father. He doesn't seek his own glory, but he seeks the glory of the Father, and this is why he's actually true. This is why that those who keep his words will never see death in verse 52, and where, why in verse 58 he actually reveals, you know, this is the spot in the Gospel of John that we've been pushing forward to where Jesus will reveal to the people that John's prologue, where John, if you remember back to chapter 1, John says this very lofty things about Jesus, that he existed from eternity with God the Father. It's very big and abstract language. And here Jesus says, you know, Abraham was looking forward to see my day. He's seen it and was glad. And the Jews were like, all right, 
well, now we know you're off your rocker because you're not even 50 years old. You're telling us you know Abraham? And Jesus says, oh yeah, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi, which is the Greek for the, uh, the translation of the Hebrew, which is the place in the Old Testament where God, using that language, reveals himself to Moses and says, I am. Jesus claims the divine name for himself. This is why the Jews pick up stones to stone him, because he's committing blasphemy. But Jesus is revealing, listen, I'm the, the uh, freedom that I offer, the righteousness that I offer, the truth that I offer, oh, it's all very real, because I and the Father are one. I am God. And the Jews pick up stones to stone God. What a, what a remarkable scene in, of, of the misunderstanding of our broken hearts and of the humble subjection of God himself to the hostile will of the people that he would rescue. One of the interesting aspects as this all kind of comes to a head at the end of chapter 8 is in verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Isn't it interesting that up until this point, all the Jews have done in their discussion with Jesus is look backward. Yeah, Jesus, we hear what you're offering, but we've got Abraham looking backwards. Abraham, where his, where his children were part of the covenant. And Jesus points out that Abraham has always been looking forward. He looked forward to see my day. He's seen it. He's rejoiced and has been glad. It's a reminder to us that there is a danger. It's very similar to the danger of the covenant people of God in our, in our passage today, which is that we can be prone to look backward rather than forward. And what do I, what do I mean by that? I mean that we can say to ourselves, Oh, I'm really in a very good spot. I'm okay because I look back to the work of Jesus. And I know that because of his death and resurrection, I'm in good standing with him. And so, I'm just going to focus on what I'm going to focus on in the here and now. It doesn't really matter because I'm I'm looking backward and I understand that God's grace has been unleashed and I'm confident in that grace. But that's exactly what the Jews are saying in this passage. God's grace has been unleashed in Abraham. We're part of Abraham's family. We're we're okay. We're not saying that the work of Jesus isn't the decisive moment at which salvation is affected, but we are saying that God's story continues to be revealed and unleashed in this world, and redemption goes forward and the kingdom grows. And are you someone who's actually looking forward and saying, how can I participate and move forward toward the end of the story that's revealed to us? Or am I someone simply who does what they want to do ultimately and looks backward to the cross? If you find yourself not one that's looking forward and you can't point to aspects of your life that are actually informed by the picture at the end of the story, then why are you any different than the Jews in John 8? What does it mean to be freed by God who offers righteousness, truth, freedom? And do you experience that? There's a a student at Asbury... Uh, was sharing not too long ago that uh, she had a long time at, uh, struggle with envy. She found herself to be um, very jealous, 
uh, very intent on hating people who did better than her, uh, very intent on uh, celebrating their failures. And she described how, in her mind, Jesus had taken her to her house. She's describing how she was been liberated by Jesus from this the sin of envy. So she describes how, in her mind, Jesus had taken her to her house and to the room in which she had locked up everyone she envied. It was packed with all her family and friends, and she testified that when Jesus helped her open the door, the people streamed out. They were free. But she simultaneously understood that it was she who had been freed. You see, for her, just picking out one sin, the sin of envy, she's struggling with the sin of envy, and then she, she experiences freedom in Jesus. How does that happen? Well, she realizes, if Jesus is God, and He offers me freedom and righteousness and truth, what am I envious of? I'm completely free and forgiven in Him. My sin is defeated. I'm in right standing with God so that I will be with Him eternally, and I have access to all truth in Christ. Why, why am I envious of these other things? And in that, she doesn't describe it, but what she's essentially doing is, oh, I'm, I'm going to be oriented not by the stories around me and looking back, but looking forward to the unveiling of the kingdom. And I can set all these people free. And in setting these people free, I realize that I've been set free. That I'm no longer in bondage to this sin. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning and thank you that you have set us free. You have brought freedom and righteousness and truth. We ask your forgiveness, Lord, for the ways in which we have denied you or the ways in which we have considered this in an entitled fashion. And not really been set free. But instead, are in places of constantly manufacturing our own truth and freedom and righteousness in ways that we hope will fill us up and instead increase our bondage tenfold. So we pray that we would know Your freedom all the more. That we would be liberated. Father, we recognize that this morning we are gathered, there are many of us who do not know Your freedom. We know bondage. We know the oppression of the slavery to sin. And I ask in your mercy and in your grace and because you are truth that you would reveal that truth and you would be a liberator this morning and you would increasingly set us free. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.